I gotta say, I, I love Sundays. <laughs> I love to uh, to get together and worship with uh, the family of God that is this local church. I uh, I love that I get to preach the good news about Jesus uh, almost almost every week, and uh, that is my passion. Uh, I love that you and I get to participate in the sacrament of communion together, that interface between heaven and earth uh, where we meet with the risen Jesus. Um, and I love what we got to do this evening uh, with the Fraser family and, uh, and events like that, dedicating a child to the Lord. Um, as a family, the Frasers publicly declared their thanks to God for the gift of a child, and they dedicated him uh, to God. They placed their parenting, their decisions as a family, their way of life in submission uh, to the, calling, uh, the following of the Jesus way. And part of that dedication involved you and I, didn't it? I mean, it, this is a, a communal affair. Jens is not dedicated as a lone individual. He's dedicated into this community. And so we, the church, vow to try, with God's help, to model the life of disciples for Jens and for other people and for each other, really. Now, this is something we do for all of our children, either through baptism or dedication, depending on what parents prefer. Uh, and we do this because we recognize in the scripture that children are precious to God, and we recognize that God has given us responsibility to raise them in the Jesus way. We recognize the dual reality that children are on the one hand precious gifts from God and on the other hand powerless really to choose how they're going to be raised. Right? On the one hand they're precious, on the other hand they're powerless, on the one hand they're important, on the other hand they're impotent to make their own decisions in life at this stage. When we think of children we often use adjectives like cute, energetic, full of life, surprisingly intelligent, surprisingly rebellious, exhausting. But some adjectives that we don't usually apply to children are greatness, prestige, power, rank, strength. For example, who's the greatest athlete in the world? That's debatable, perhaps. But I bet a child didn't come to your mind. Who's the greatest intellectual in the world? I don't know. It's debatable. But a child doesn't come to mind. The greatest political leader in the world, who is it? Probably not a child. The greatest spiritual leader? Probably not a child. The greatest innovator of art and culture? No children's name are going to make that list. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's a good question. A question the disciples ask of Jesus. See, they expected that since Jesus was a king, and since they were the twelve closest men uh, to this king, that they would have rank in the kingdom of heaven. And they wanted to know, out of the twelve, which one of them would be the greatest in that kingdom. And here's how the story goes. Stand with me, please. As we read the Gospel of Matthew, verse, chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
And he called a child to himself and set him before him and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, well, it would be better for him not to have been born, but to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and drowned into the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. It's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling blocks come. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and toss it from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is with the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Lord, this is a difficult teaching. It turns my world upside down. Uh, I suspect it will do the same for each of us. Lord, I confess up front that often when I'm faced with a tough word, uh, I want to forget about it and move on. I want to rationalize it away. And Lord, I pray for your help for each of us this evening uh, to not discount this word. Lord, show us how to enter in one step at a time. Show us what steps to take um, to allow you to transform our lives. We're desperate for your help. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Jesus is giving this teaching to his disciples in first century in Palestine, which is a vastly, obviously, different place and obviously a different time, uh, nearly 2,000 years ago. In our culture, we still struggle with racial and gender inequality, but racial and gender inequality is at least a term in our culture. It's generally seen as bad. It is not a thing um, that we Uh, that we tout as being a good thing. And we have a long way to go, uh, but in our culture, it's not okay to to discriminate and and, and to have a, a striated social structure. Similarly, we have laws in place that don't always work and don't prevent bad things, but we have laws in place that technically are supposed to protect children. 
child labor laws, laws against certain forms of uh, abuse and, and these kinds of things. We have laws in our, in our code of law as a nation against these things. Many nations do uh, in these days we live in. But you have to appreciate that, or not appreciate, but just understand, that in the Roman world, in the first century, the lines of status were clearly differentiated and they were socially supported. Certain types of people were just believed to be less completely human than other types of people and that was the way it was and it was actually seen as a good thing, a natural thing. It's a world I still can't quite get my mind around. For example, by and large, men in the first century were believed to be of higher value intrinsically than women. Not scripturally, not according to the Bible, not according to Jesus, but just in in the culture, in the Roman culture of that day and age. Women uh, were not allowed to hold political positions of power. They were not allowed to achieve what the world might see as greatness. But below women, and in fact far below women, were the class of children. Now during the time our story takes place, children were seen as subhuman. I know that's so difficult to get. They were seen as subhuman until the age of puberty. In biblical Greek, the word child, paideon, is most often found not in the feminine form, not in the masculine form, but in the neuter form. So that literally, that passage we just read was if anyone receives a, a child such as, I said him, it's a, a, it's a gloss, it's really it. Children were referred to as it, not him or her before a certain age. Because personhood was not attached to children very early on until they became uh, striking puberty, they were easier to dispose of, less human, easier to get rid of. In poorer families, children could easily be sold as slaves. And because of the high price of marrying off a daughter in that age, you had to have a dowry for a daughter to get her married off, many female babies were simply left out in the wilderness to either be picked up by slave traders or exposed to the elements. In fact, just an interesting side note, it was the early Christian movement that would go find these places and take these babies and raise them in their own families. In fact, uh, this selling of children and exposing them to to nature still happens in many cultures today. Some of you have met my friend Sid, who is from India. We went to graduate school together. Uh, Sid is uh, from a part of India where nearby uh, this was a common practice because of the financial um, weight, the crushing weight of what a dowry would cost if certain families had a, uh, a, like my family, about three daughters. Thank God for equal, you know, we're going Dutch on our weddings, let's just say that, okay? So if you have boys, you're going to pay half. No. Uh, but, but in that culture, there is this incredible social pressure to provide all of this financial gain. So um, some of these people, when they would get too many daughters, they would just sell them off uh, in, into, into slavery. And so Sid's parents are actually part of an organization back in India that is fighting against this uh, social trend, trying to get the whole dowry system done away with in the area that they live in. Now my point is this, that children in the first century world that Jesus is speaking into were seen as having zero status, zero greatness. Now Jesus' disciples 
were wondering who among them was going to be greatest in the kingdom. And they're assuming it's going to be one of them. So to answer their question, Jesus looks around. You know, I don't know where they're at. They're outside. And and the disciples are asking this question. And and in my imagination, some kids are playing or kids walking by. And Jesus says, hey, son or daughter, come over here. And he places this child, the text says, at his feet, which is the place a disciple ought to be. So they place the, he places the child at his feet. And he says, and I imagine this, I, I don't know if it happened this way, but I imagine a dramatic pause where the disciples have asked the question, Jesus puts the child at his feet, and then he pauses, I would do this. And he looks in everyone's eyes. And he says, unless you are converted, which means literally it's this word strafo, um, You know, in machine guns in the movies, when they strafe, like this, it means to turn around. Anyway, that's that's a geek moment, just forgive me. But anyway, so it means to turn and to change the way in which you view the world. So unless you change the way, unless you view the world and become like children, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Forget about your rank in the kingdom of heaven. You ain't getting in unless you change your mindset and become like a child. Well, you can almost feel what the atmosphere must have been like. I don't know. I I wonder if there was this (gasps) gasp. I wonder if there was silence and jaws dropped. I mean, not even Peter, who always finds a way to put his foot in his mouth, says anything. He doesn't even say anything here. Absolute silence. Let's take a step back for a minute. Think about Jesus' career up to this point, his life. On the one hand, you know, this shouldn't be that surprising. After all, we're talking about a guy who says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And he says, blessed are the humble, the weak, the meek, however you want to parse that out. For they, not the strong, not the tyrants, for the weak and the meek and the humble, they will inherit the earth. After all, we're talking about a man who left the security of the Godhead, of heaven, was born into a natural birth through a woman who was not yet wed, had no status in society, was first greeted by shepherds who were the low end of the social scale, and pagan astrologers, magi of all people, who were unclean, to say the least. That's the guy that they've been following around. How surprising should it have been that they would have to become humble like a child? On the other hand, um, I feel for the disciples. Because I know how powerful cultural voices can be. You, you have to appreciate that these guys, every one of them, were raised in a Jewish household, except for maybe Philip. We don't know quite his background, but he knew the stories up to this point. And everyone knew that the Messiah, the popular view of the Messiah, was that he was going to be a strong leader, that he was going to be powerful, that he was going to be a leader of men, like Ron Burgundy. Maybe not like that. No. Um, no, he was going to be pious, unlike Ron Burgundy, actually. And uh, he was going to be a, a powerful, strong, take-charge leader who was going to bring Israel back into prominence. 
And so behind all the pious talk of Jesus, the disciples just couldn't get their definition of kingship and Messiah out of their head. And so they must have just been thinking, man, when this guy makes it, when he takes the throne, we're so in. We're going to be somebodies. What is your definition of greatness? What do you do with this passage? What does it mean that you and I and anyone who wants to follow Jesus need to be converted and become like children? Well, first, let me just address what it doesn't mean. At least this is my opinion. (laughs) I've heard way too many well-meaning interpretations of this passage wax romantically about childhood. Children are so open and honest and have fresh perspective or how children, they don't have any inhibitions or how genuine a child's love is. And these interpretations tend to focus more on the attributes of a child, as if all children, of course, they're all the same. These interpretations, I think, probably from people who don't even have kids or are grandparents and just see the kids once a month. Because the kids that I know of are, before they can even talk, sneaky, (laughs) conniving, and argumentative. No, I mean, kids are great, people are great, but nobody's perfect. I don't think Jesus is saying, become just like a kid. Because if everyone became like my kids, look out world. So what is Jesus saying? What is he meaning when he says, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, we have to become like children or childlike? What is it about a child in the first century that we're to emulate in order to receive the kingdom? Well, I believe it's not so much a quality that we're supposed to emulate, but a reality that we're supposed to accept. Okay, and, and here it is. A child in the first century had no legal status of their own. They were property. Their world consisted of receiving instruction and obeying that instruction or... Receiving gifts. Instruction and gifts. That's the life of a child, especially in the first century. That's the key. In our world, the great ones are the takers, the masters, the achievers, the forceful, the bullies, the loud. Jesus is saying that world system is not reality. When the kingdom comes in full, God's reign is going to be enforced. And then we will realize that we have no reason for arrogance or pride. We have no greatness in and of ourselves. All we have comes from God. All our status, all our our abilities, all of our opportunities. Jesus is saying that entering the kingdom of heaven is not about qualifying for it. It's not about doing the right things to get in it. It's about receiving gratefully as those who are receiving it from God, like a child. Well, the word for this is humility. Humility. This is the quality Jesus is talking about. And as someone smarter than I has said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's not about beating yourself up. 
Woe is me. I'm going to be humble. It's about being dependent on God for all good things. Now, I know what some of you (laughs) achievers are thinking, maybe right now, because this is what I was thinking. So, if the greatest are the most childlike, I'm going to be the most childlike person in the kingdom. I'm going to achieve greatness. And here's the brilliance of Jesus. You can't do it. That would be paradoxical. Children, this, this quality, this humility, this is not an ambitious quality. So the minute you're trying to be more ambitious, the most ambitious childlike person in the kingdom, you've ceased to be like a child. Dang it. Foiled again. So how do we then become partakers of the kingdom? Because let me, let's be honest, like this humility thing, um, uh, being dependent on anything, let alone God, that's not my wiring out of the box. That is not how I am, um, how my natural disposition is. That's not what the world tells me will get me very far. It's not natural. How do we develop this quality? Well, as we will see, Jesus is going to expand his discussion from literally talking about children to then he changes the word to little ones. And little ones include children, but it also is anyone who is vulnerable, who is weak, who is coming to grips with their own mortality, with their own um, limitations, the voiceless, the exploitable. Let me just suggest four ways that will help you and I develop the kind of humility that Jesus is talking about. The first way is this. Spend time with those who are truly weak, not just those who are weak for their own choosing, who are always like down on themselves. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about spend time with people who are truly inherently weak in their life situation. So this would obviously include children, all right? Shameless plug, serve in children's ministry. You'll be around it. You'll be around the weak. You'll be around the powerless. They don't get to decide what lesson you're going to teach them that day or how you interact with them. That's just what they're receivers of what you give. It will humble you because you'll be intimidated. It's really weird how that works. Additionally, spend time with those who are little ones in the world. The hurting, uh, the dying. If you've got people uh, in your life who who are ill, Um, spending time with those people, it will change you. Uh, The homeless, the chronically ill. Here's why. Here's what will happen if we start spending more time with little ones. First of all, you won't be able to fix them. I know, that's hard to receive. I look out in this room and I see so many competent, uh, educated experienced, wonderful people. But when you are around little ones, you cannot fix them. You will quickly come to the end of your ability. And that's good for you, and it's good for me. You will realize that you're not that powerful. And you will realize that you are not that different. When you're around the sick and dying, you're going to be faced with your own inevitable mortality. When you are around the homeless and you begin to hear their stories, you will realize, my God, I am so close to being this, t- this person. Had it not been for my circle of friends or the family net that have caught me 
or raised me, for a few decisions I may have made differently, for a few opportunities I may have had that they didn't have, that line between, if you want to say us and them, it's so fine. It's humbling. The other thing that's going to happen is that your heart will break and you'll become more human and you'll be a more grateful receiver. So spend time with the little ones. The second thing is spend time in God's word. I know that's so cliche, but hear me out. The reason I say that is because you, you will struggle. And when I just said that, I'm sure that there's a percentage of you who are like, Dang, I feel bad. I don't spend enough time in God's word. I wish I did. Pay attention to that voice. That feeling of failure. It's actually good for you to a degree. Let it remind you that you need God's help to even want to read the scriptures. When is the last time you asked God, would you help me to like your word? It's boring. God, would you help me to actually interact with you? I feel like I'm just reading words on a page. It's okay to pray those prayers. That's my experience a lot of times too. When you are in the word of God, struggling with it, you'll come to grips with your own weakness. And then when you start to like, like it, and you start to read it, and you start to look at this life of Jesus, you'll be like, dang, the bar is high to follow Jesus. The road is narrow that leads to life. And then you'll recognize your weakness afresh, which is the true beginning of humility and childlikeness. Spend time with the little ones. Spend time in the word. And serve, number three, serve with your brothers and sisters. Right here. Why? Because they will bug you. <laughs> they will bug you. In fact, we're, Zoe's not a, Zoe says, you're the most annoying person in this church. I said, Zoe, I've got two jobs when I come on Sunday. Preach the gospel of Jesus and to bug you. I love it. It's easy to bug. Uh, serving with each other will humble you because you will receive grace from each other for your idiosyncrasies. Uh, you will extend grace. You'll have the opportunity to at least when people bug you. Uh, you will share laughter together and struggle together and it will show you that no one is unimportant and no one, including yourself, is too important for community. And here's another shameless plug. You want to grow in this area? Sign up for the retreat this summer. Take a risk to be childlike by waking up without your makeup just right and your hair messed up. Take a risk by letting people see your kids amped up on sugar and missing some naps. I guarantee it'll be fun and good for you and good for everyone else too. When we, when we show each other that we don't have it all together, it's good for us. It's hard. It's good for us. It's humbling. The fourth thing, and... I know this is the simplest one, but sometimes it's hard. Ask. Ask Jesus to help you. Ask him to help you let go of your overactive sense of responsibility to make your life work. That describes me. <laughs> Some of you I know resonate with that. Ask him to help you let go of your overactive sense of responsibility to make your life work. 
this is not a license for irresponsibility. So if you're type A like me, it's not saying, oh, it's going to be chaos if we do that. Uh, it, but it is freedom. It's asking God for the freedom to be his child and not a demigod. The reality is that we are receivers of the kingdom, not earners of the kingdom. And that's a humbling reality. Right? Okay? Okay. So that's kind of the personal side of it. But this passage is not just a personal reality. Jesus also calls us to look out for the little ones in our lives. They're everywhere. And like I mentioned earlier, they can be children, actual children. But they can also be the homeless, the uneducated, the undereducated, the underappreciated. They can be the socially awkward They can be those who carry so much pain from their past that they're abrasive. And they come off as maybe a jerk, but you don't know how deeply hurt they are on the inside because you never gave them a chance. It takes humility to love the little ones. And here's the thing, and here's the very difficult teaching of Jesus that we can't just squirm out of. Jesus is saying, That if we cause harm, cause one of these little ones to get tripped up in their faith, we're going to be held accountable to the highest degree. If our attitude of discrimination and impatience and exclusivity prohibit people from faith in Jesus through our community, we will pay. I wish I didn't have to preach that, but, you know, we're preaching through Matthew, and this is in there. The words of Jesus... Jesus is not naive. He knows that there are going to be tons of stumbling blocks in the world to our faith. But he says, woe to to the one through whom those stumbling blocks come. So the stumbling blocks are out there. You just want to make sure that you're not one of them. Because it would be better for that person to have a heavy millstone tied around their neck and cast into the ocean, which means a certain horrible death, rather than be responsible for the stumbling up of one of these little ones. So I've kind of nuanced some of these woes to maybe hit home a little bit. Woe to us when we go to church as a family, but behind closed doors, we abuse our wives or our husbands or our kids behind closed doors. Hear Jesus' warning. Get help. Woe to us when we only invite certain types of people into our homes and into our lives. Woe to us when we make outsiders feel like outsiders in our community rather than family. Our actions reflect our Jesus. Woe to us when we partake in inner office gossip and racist jokes and unethical practices, and sexist talk, people are watching you, forming opinions about your life and your faith in the Jesus you talk about. Don't be a stumbling block to someone who wants to know the Lord and his community of faith. Woe to us when we perpetuate human trafficking by watching illicit material online. When we do that, we give a market to the people who are buying sex slaves, putting them on film, 
so that we can consume it behind closed doors. And Jesus warns us with extreme hyperbole, cut off your limbs if it's going to help you, prevent you from being a stumbling block. Now, of course, cutting off your arm or your foot or plucking an eyeball out is not really going to prevent you from being a stumbling block. The idea is do whatever it takes to live a life that doesn't cause people to stumble. Now, to illustrate this point, Jesus gives us this weird statement about the little ones having angels in heaven who are constantly before the face of God. It's a fascinating little passage. We don't know too much about angels, but what we know is that when they are mentioned as being in the presence of God, they can't look at his face. That he's too glorious, too radiant. In fact, think of Isaiah 6 where you've got uh, the cherubim and seraphim and they've got these six wings. They've got six wings. But they only use two of the six, one third, uh, to, to fly. The other two, they're covering up their feet, which we think is a, a sign of respect. It's, in fact, if you go to places like, like Bali today and you are at a cafe and you cross your leg, you, you do not want the bottom of your feet to show to anyone, especially elders, it's seen as a incredibly rude. You might as well give them the bird, right? So they're covering their feet, and then with two wings, they're covering their face in the presence of God. They can't bear to see His awesome radiance and His glory. So they've got six wings, and four of them are used for appropriate worship before the living God. Now here's the thing about this passage. Apparently, these little ones are so precious to the Father that they have representatives in his throne room, these angels, and these angels are allowed to look into the face of God. And what that means in kind of royal courtroom talk is that they have direct access to the Father. So that whenever one of the little ones they represent are mistreated, the Father knows it right away. Whenever I cause a little one to stumble, the Father hears about it right away. Conversely, whenever you invite a little one into your life, show them respect, cherish them, love them, help them see Jesus, the Father's hearing about that firsthand from the representative of that little one. Hmm, precious to him. Unbelievably precious to him. Jesus illustrates his point with another parable. Shepherd has a hundred sheep. One strays, and Jesus says, Will he not leave the ninety-nine on a mountainside and go find the one? So it is with your Father in heaven. Now, here's the thing. Kenneth Bailey, a man who has lived in the Middle East for, uh, or the Near East for uh, several decades now, uh, has asked about this cultural phenomenon. Been around shepherds. You're out with your sheep grazing for a, a week, two weeks, three weeks with a hundred sheep. You come back with 99, it's really dang good. There's a lot of predators out there, right? A, a shepherd would never leave 99 sheep on a hillside to go find one sheep. I mean, that's an acceptable loss. Collateral damage. It's just what happens when you go out on, on, a, on a grazing thing for a few weeks out. So the significance of this passage is 
And remember, this is a parable, not an analogy. So this isn't like God just leaves the church behind and only seeks the lost. What, the, the point is, no shepherd would leave the 99 for the one, but your Father in heaven so loves these little ones, these lost, these straying ones, that he goes and pursues them. He's the good shepherd who goes after the one. Who is the one? Who is the straying sheep? This is another thing that just blew my mind this week. You know, in Luke's gospel, I think I preached on it maybe four or five years ago here at church, in Luke's gospel, there's a similar parable um, about the sheep. And in that context, that lost sheep, the one that's straying about, is in reference to someone who does not yet know Jesus. So it's really a parable about evangelism for people who don't know the Lord yet. What's interesting is that in Matthew's version, this parable is not about someone who doesn't know the Lord yet. This parable is about someone who may be part of the church. It might be one of those 40 plus kids down there. You know, just because a kid goes to church and is raised in a quote unquote Christian home, there's no guarantee they're going to become a disciple. How are we doing with them? How are we investing in their lives? This parable is about the person that maybe, you know, I thought they went to our church, I just haven't seen them in a while. It's a call for us to be like the Father and pursue them. Give them a call. Write them a card. Err on the side of being, you know, we're we're also, I don't want to bug anyone, it's Bellingham. Err on the side of just acting like you care. This parable is about the person sitting to your right or your left right now, who you think, they're in church almost every time I'm here, they must be fine. Are you kidding me? Nobody's fine all the time. I'm not fine all the time. And not everyone has someone in their life checking in with them on a regular basis. This is the work of the church. You're sitting around little ones right now. And this is the crux, I think, of the passage. This is the really good news. And it's the humbling reality. When we choose to begin walking down this road of humility, of becoming childlike, we make ourselves vulnerable. I'm not, that's, that's the part you have to hear. It's a choice you really have to make. You have to count the cost. When you stop and refuse to use the ways of the world, the weapons of pride, pride can get you a long way in the world, anger can get you a long way in the world. Anger, when you are angry, people are intimidated and you get your way. Might, manipulation, these are the tools of the world that can get you pretty far on Celebrity Apprentice. That's kind of a joke, but in real life too. We give way to those things and we begin to be merciful. A bunch of Timbers fans just walked by. But they're the little ones, so bless them. Uh, we begin to be merciful, peacemakers, forgivers, sharers, givers. In the truest sense, when we follow Jesus, we become little ones. We become Receivers, not takers, not earners of the kingdom. We become ones who are represented in the throne room by angels who have 
the direct attention of the Father. You see where I'm going? You should be happy about this. When we begin to follow Jesus, we make ourselves vulnerable. We become little ones. We have a representative directly to the Father's face. He's watching out for you. There is nothing that can happen to you when you are vulnerable that will not be redeemed, that justice will not uh, make right in the coming kingdom. When we then realize that the Father did send the good shepherd after the wandering sheep, and that shepherd is Jesus, and his path was the cross, and the lost sheep wandering to an inevitable death is you and is me, and we are found in Christ. Pray with me, please. Jesus, I've been living in this passage all week and even as I preach it now, I feel uh, the fear inside of me. I want to sort of let go, um, but I want to retain some of my... I want to be well thought of. I want to feel in control. I want to... um, I want to earn... Lord, it's the way I was raised. It's the way so many of us were raised. And it feels like a mountain to undo that training. And so I pray for me and for my brothers and sisters for your intervention. That you would help us release our grip um, on our own lives, on our own reputations, on our own um, situations, Lord. And that you would help us to be receivers that you would help us to be full of gratitude, that you would help us to become like children. Lord, give us eyes to see the little ones around us. Lord, give us courage to engage where we feel uncomfortable and inadequate. And instead, help us to see your adequacy in those situations. Lord, I know we can't flip a switch right now and just say, I'm like a child all of a sudden. But I pray that through the power of your spirit uh, and through your word, that right now you would help each of us to take a step closer to that childlikeness, to that stance of receiving instead of taking. Amen.